Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and in the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is singer, songwriter, musician, Willie Nile. Willie, you had an adventure at the end of the year in your hometown of Buffalo. Tell us a story. Hello, Bob. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I was born in Buffalo, raised there. I live in New York. I've lived in New York off and on for about 50 years. And my dad, I have a father who's 105 years old, lives at home outside of Buffalo. One of my brothers lives with him the last four years, and he's 105, but he's doing great. He goes to church every day. He's like, he just takes no medication. You'd think that he was in early 80s. So I went up to Buffalo for Christmas and uh, staying at his home. Uh, He's a great storyteller and funny guy. And uh, after a couple of days, uh, we saw this big storm was coming in, you know, the Buffalo blizzard. And I read about it ahead of time about how high winds, really high winds and cold weather can cause frostbite. Anyway, so I wake up on Friday morning, two days before Christmas, the 23rd of December. And I, you know, at 11.15, I wake up, my brother says, we're out of power, no heat. And I thought, you're kidding me, right? Apparently someone in a truck ran into a utility pole and uh, with a driving ban on. I wanted them to put that person's picture on the front of the Buffalo newspaper so that everyone know who ran into the pole that caused 850 some homes to be without power. So there was no power. Okay, I got up, got dressed, and dad was doing crossword puzzles like always. You know, he doesn't complain. He's really great. So we were without power for three days and uh, three nights. It was 80 mile an hour winds. It was eight degrees outside and it was freezing. It was so cold. I grew up in Buffalo. You know, I know the winter, there's 85 words for snow in Buffalo. There's not, but it was so cold. Um, I had, we had a fireplace, but no wood. Had, you know, a gas fireplace. We turned it on, lit it all the way up, but it doesn't emanate much heat. I would put my hands at the top of the, you know, the fireplace just to hold, you know, the, the, the stones had warmth, but it didn't emanate heat. Long story short, there was a neighbor next door who was really great, ex-Marine. 
in the middle of this blizzard. There was four feet of snow in the driveway. Uh, it was beautiful. The, everything was going sideways because the wind was so hard. And so I thought, uh, my phone's dying, you know, like later in the day on Friday. And we had no contact. We were, we were, everyone was stranded in the neighborhood, everywhere. There was so much snow. So I, I made my, it took about 10 minutes to go just right next door. I used a shovel as an anchor to get through the snow. I did was, I just pulled myself up, knocked on their door and they, that they hesitated to open the door. There was some figure in black outside their door. They didn't know who it was. The guy answered and said, hi, you know, I live next door. My dad's 105 and my phone is dying. Can I use your car, you know, to charge the phone? He goes, oh, we'll do it inside. So took my phone. He charged my phone like six or seven times over the course of three days. Sunday morning, the third day, they, they, they couldn't do it anymore. And uh, the second, when I went back uh, Saturday morning to get my phone one time, I said, what's your phone number? And he said, I'll give it to you later. I go, no, no I'll, take, I'll take it now. I took my glove off for 30 seconds. It, how, how long does it take to type a, a, a number to phone? I typed it in and, you know, my hands were really cold, put it back on, went home. And my, my, my fingers, my three fingers on my right hand are still uh, a, a little numb. It's gotten better, but it's not 100%. And this was, well, whatever, it was the 24th of December. Long story short, we had, we were freezing. Getting in bed on Friday night was brutal. Dressed, we, we might have been going skiing in, in, the, in the Alps. We were dressed that, that much, uh, multiple coats, hats, socks, all kinds of clothes, and it didn't help much. Woke up really early, 6 o'clock, because it was so cold you couldn't sleep. And Dad was great. My brother, uh, he took the grill off the, his grill and put it on the fireplace and on the grate, and he made some eggs and some coffee for Dad. But it was still so cold, and Dad never complained once. I had, we had wine. You know, so I opened up a bottle of wine we were drinking, and I made a couple of video clips and put them on Facebook. Next thing I know, on Tuesday night, Inside Edition goes, meanwhile, in Buffalo, this guy <laughs> cuts to me. This guy. So I'm changing my name officially to this guy. And uh, they did edits of my clip of Dad. And the thing about the clip was, and so many people responded, to go, oh, your father, I love your dad. You know, he's a really good guy. But people, here's 105, and I said, I'm looking at my phone, you know, selfie hey dad say hello to everybody hi everybody we're having a blast he holds up his glass of red wine and it was really cold and i did another clip where i said just so you know how cold it is and i would just breathe out and you could see my my breath three feet away you know and it was pretty rough and brutal on the third day in the morning i woke up with chills and uh, a low fever and i thought this is going downhill you know so i called there's a plow service we have for my dad and I called the guy and said, I'll give you $500 if you can get my dad out of here. You know, my ex-wife lived a mile and a half away. And he says, I I'm trying to get there. I hope in two hours. He calls me up two hours later. He goes, I'm at the six houses away and I'm stuck in 10 feet of snow. But I can get out and I'm going to go to the local fire hall. Because I called 911. I called the National Guard. I got put on lists. I called the fire hall. Anyway, he went to the fire hall and said, there's a 105-year-old man in a house that they're stranded. Uh, we weren't the only ones stranded, but, you know, he wasn't 85. He wasn't 95. He was 105. And he didn't say a word. Occasionally he'd say, hey, you know, my born name is, is Robert, Bob. He was, hey, Bob, turn on the Christmas tree lights. I go, uh, Dad, there's no power. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. You know, God bless him. He never complained once. I did. I complained. And my brother says, it's not going to help to complain. I go, well, it's helping me. The police and fire rescued us. 
on the third day, about three o'clock. And there was a, I don't know what you call them, a snowcat or something. One of those a snow removal uh, thing with not wheels, but like a tank. Snowcat, I don't know. It went over everything. Got down our street, went in our driveway, backed out and took snow out enough for a, another uh, emergency vehicle to back in. And we got in the car. That was the first heat we had in three days. And I thought, wow. And I was thinking about the people in Ukraine during that. I thought, you know what? We have at least we have gas. We could cook, you know, whatever we have. I could put my hands on the stones. You know, my hands are really, you know, I'm sens extra sensitive now to the, the cold. And they're still numb, these fingers, these three. But I thought about the poor people in Ukraine. They're getting bombed to hell, you know, S just absolute s savagery. And they don't have gas fireplaces they can turn on. So I just really, my heart went out to them. And uh, we, they took us to a warming center. Um, and it was a junior high school. And, you know, when you're 105 years old, sitting on a little stool, Dad said, I need something with my back. And someone heard him and went and got a real chair. And I must say this. Here's a silver lining to us. The way that neighbors treated neighbors. Like, I, I believe in this country. I mean, it's obviously a lot, of, a lot wrong. A lot wrong in the history. There's so much wrong. But when, you know, people are shoveling each other's driveways out. I saw a neighbor across the street go into the next two houses checking on people. The guy next door on Saturday morning, he comes over and brings a bag of hand warmers. Those hand warmers saved our butts. They really did. I carry one in my, in my pocket now just because. And uh, the, the, the volunteers, the, the cops, the firemen, the people who are volunteering, in the vehicle that rescued, we were in a car, we were in five different cars that day. And because we went to two warming centers, went to a hotel, whatever, two, three hotels, finally got in. But the way people pitched in to help each other was really, I thought, this is really encouraging to me. People are, there, are, there is good in a lot of people. So it was really a brutal experience. Dad was fine. I mean, he, I heard him going to bed Saturday night, second night. I wasn't going to go back in that bed. I moved the couch in front of the fireplace, even though it didn't give much heat. It was light, the illusion of heat. And I heard Dad get into the bed. Oh, oh. <laughs> he's 105 for crying out loud. Anyway, the, the silver lining was that I'm left with is that, man, there's some really good people. People pitched in to help each other, and it was heartening to see. Anyway, that was my Christmas. Okay, you say your father called out to Bob. Your real name is Bob Noonan. Yes. How did you become Willie Nile? So I moved, I graduated from the University of Buffalo in 72. And, you know, I was, I, started, I was writing poetry in high school and college. I started writing songs. I played, took classical piano lessons. My grandfather ran an orchestra for 20 plus years in vaudeville. Well, when he died in 53, Eddie Cantor had a nationwide TV show. And there's a camaraderie with musicians. And my dad has talked about it for years. And when he died, figured Eddie Cantor's got a, a live TV show across the nation. Half an hour, he's probably on the air for 20 minutes or 22 minutes. And he took time out to say my good friend Dick Noonan passed away this week and condolences to the family. That he would do that from New York City? I thought, man, those guys must have been close. Bojangles Robinson used to send him Christmas cards every year. And he also carried a gun, you know, a black man with money. And uh, it's just fascinating stories growing up. So I'm in high school. I, we start studying the poets. And I, I become, I think maybe I'm a poet because I stare at sunlight when it's coming in the classroom and blah, blah, blah. So I started writing songs. So in my college years, I was writing songs. And then when I graduated, I went to New York City to, to try to make a living, you know, making, 
trying to get my songs recorded. You know, uh, I was never, I didn't, I don't care about fame. That's not stinking rich. I'll take that. Give me on the minute. I'll be stinking. I could be stinking rich, but fame didn't do a lot for Michael Jackson. That's not why I do what I do. And anyway, so I used to play open mics. I'm, pl I'm writing rock and roll songs. And, um, uh, but I, I, I couldn't afford a band. I was broke. Did not want to join a group. No curiosity whatsoever for that. I just wanted to sing the songs I wrote. So just acoustic guitar, open mics. And uh, I used to go to the Bitter End, had one every week on Bleecker Street, Folk City, whatever, a few different ones. So one night when I was at the Cafe Ogogo, I went on stage. This is why I changed my name. That's to answer your question. I'm on stage at the Cafe Ogogo, and I played three songs, you know, and, and I would, I, very expressive when I play. They were rock and roll songs. And I jumped off the stage when I was done or whatever, so I'm clowning around introducing imaginary characters playing behind me. There's Ludwig van Beethoven on bass, whatever. Anyway, so when I was done with my three-song set, I'm walking off the stage. The guy announcing goes, uh, we'll have some more guerrilla music for you. Because it was 72. It was like sensitive singer-songwriter time, you know. No offense to James Taylor, but he was like the successful guy at the time. And there were all these sensitive, oh, so sensitive people uh, and uh, this guy said oh we'll have some more guerrilla music i wanted to take my guitar and smash him over the head and my wife said no 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 we, we can't afford a new one don't and i didn't the following week i'm in line at the bitter end i put my name on a list stand in line for 45 minutes because back then there were a lot of lines i'm in line and um i get in line and the, the comedian who was taking the names he just was didn't care anything about music and i I, I put my name down, and he—I didn't get on until two or three in the morning. He would put his friends on ahead of the people on the list. Very disrespectful. I, whatever. I take it as it comes. Next week I go there, and I'm in line waiting in the rain. I said, "I go, hey, my name is Bob Noonan." He goes, I, "I'm sorry, what? I, I couldn't hear you. What?" I go, uh, "It doesn't matter. You can make one up." He goes, "Oh no, no." He goes. It's very important. He gives me this 30-second lecture about how important it is what your name is. Oh, no, it makes a big difference. Oh, really, says I. Well, in that case, my name is Huey Rosenberg. And he goes, Rosenberg? No, no, Rosenberg, like the pitcher's mound. You know, I, I refused. I refused to play that game. To this day, I do not. I will not. So I, the next week I went, I was, um, I was, uh, uh, the first week I was Huey Rosenberg. Next week I was Osgood Pequod. I gave the guy a different, every name, Mo Downs, Umberto Snorts. I just gave this guy a different name every week. He didn't know the difference. He did not care. So my, my wife and I would sit in the back waiting for this clown to say this ridiculous name. And uh, I was watching uh, this great PBS, document, not documentary, but series, Search for the Nile. Terrific series. And one night I woke up, Willie Nile. I'm a philosophy major. To say something's nihilistic made me laugh. To say willy-nilly is kind of self-effacing, which I thought, you know, if they're going to praise me, they can use a name I made up. If they're going to slam me in the press, go ahead, use my made-up name. So it's, and it's, I thought it was a good rock and roll name, and uh, it's, it served me well. So, yeah, that's, that's how I changed my name and why I did it. Yeah. Okay, in your private life, people call you Bob or they call you Willie? Oh, everybody since 72, it's Willie. When I'm back with family, cousins, uh, you know, or, or brothers and sisters on one of eight. It's a very large family. And uh, we have 105 when we all go on vacation every year. It's Bob or Bobby. But everybody else on the planet's Willie. Okay. So you grew up in Buffalo. How many generations was your family in Buffalo? My father was born in Buffalo in 19... 
17. His father was born in Lowell, Massachusetts, and his mother in 1884. Their parents um, were born in Ireland. And uh, so, and my mom's parents, something similar. Her, her parents were born in 1889 and 18, I'm sorry, 1899 and uh, 1900. And her father's grandfather was born in French Indian territory. I remember seeing, uh, you know, I thought, and then I looked at a picture of him when he was, I used to work at Showtime TV Networks as a proofreader. Right? When I got broke, I was a proofreader for a bunch, a bunch of years, and I was running my little record label out of my little cubicle. And I put, I would print out these old family portraits and put them all over the cube, just these, you know, old school stuff. One day I'm looking at my grandfather's picture when he was three, my mother's father. And I'm going, wait a minute. He was from Attica, New York. And his great-grandfather, great, his great, his great no, his grandfather, was born in French Indian territory. I look at his face. And I'm going, he, was, he died at 60 from smoking since he was 12. Jet black hair, really dark skin. I go, there's Indian blood in this guy. You know, you could see the, the photograph. So anyway, that, that's where they go back mid, mid three generations, something like that. Mid-1800s, they all came over here. The Irish famine, you know, kicked a lot of people out of Ireland. Why Buffalo? So why Buffalo? So in the mills in Lowell, Massachusetts started closing, you know, and there was no work. So my, my father, my, my grandfather, uh, Dick Noonan, and his brother, John Noonan, were musicians, you know. Um, Dad tells the story of, uh, at one point, the, the local pastor, the priest, uh, the priest from the local church came to the house to talk to uh, my mother, my grandmother's father dissuading saying your daughter shouldn't be going out with a musician that's not a good thing you know <laughs> i can't disagree he was a sweetheart but uh um they were this john noonan the older brother said i'm gonna go to buffalo see if there's work there so he moved to buffalo was there a few months called his brother and said there's tons of work here because buffalo was like the gateway to the west you know to northern canada and the west if you left new york lots of that you went buffalo was the main and I often wonder, because my, my brother, my uncle, my great uncle, John Noonan, was the orchestra leader for the Shays Buffalo. Great, great old theater. I saw In Excess there. It's an amazing place. And I'm sure that the Marx Brothers passed through there. I'd love to talk to both those guys. Go, tell me about the Marx Brothers, you know, whatever. So, yeah, that's how, that's how they got to Buffalo. So, what did your 105-year-old father do for a living? My father, when he got out of the army uh, in uh, 45, my father uh, was an accountant. He was a CPA, took the CPA exam, had a couple of kids. And uh, so he was a certified public accountant for some years. Then in early 50s, 53 or 4, he had a beer distributorship, which was awesome for us kids because in 1961, Elston Howard, the Yankees catcher, MVP that year. Of course. I mean, came to our house. We were like, if you're back then, the only TV, it was two stations. There was channel two and channel four. This is before channel seven. <laughs> think where we are now. And think what the, my, my father's seen since 1917. So Elston Howard, uh, during the, they weren't making much money. So in the wintertime, they had other jobs. And he was a PR, uh, whatever, for, uh, I don't know if it was Labatt's Beer or Ballantine Ale or Paps Blue Ribbon, one of those. And my dad was the distributor in Buffalo. We weren't rich, you know, we weren't poor, but we were, you know, somewhere in the middle. 
and Elston Howard came to our house. We were on the moon. I, what was I in 1961? I was born in 48. So, you know, I was like, you know, I was just a kid, 13 years old or whatever. The Elston Howard, come on. You know, and uh, yeah, it was, it was priceless. And he was really nice. His hands were huge. And I couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah. Okay, so did your father... He went back, my father went back to being a CPA. And we, we had no money. He lost the business. It was, uh, it was bad. Business was bad. He lost it. And uh, really, you know, he had to take, he took a job teaching accounting. So he was, uh, from then on, he was an accountant, taught for a few years, paid back his debts. And then he, he worked till he was about 78 as an accountant. Hardworking guy. To this day, he wakes up, goes to church, comes home, has breakfast, hits the crossword puzzles, gets his pencil out, he's got his eraser, he's got his pencil sharpener. He does crossword puzzles for a couple hours. Then he'll read for an hour or two, read books. He loves history. Then he'll go back to doing more crossword puzzles. So the accountant in him is still there. When mom died 17 years ago at the age of 87, he just, he says, you got to just get up. He, I said, how do you, how you doing, dad? How you feeling? You know, like some months later, he goes, I'm all right. Uh, he says, you got to pick yourself up. Life, life will hit you hard. It'll hit all of us. Hey, don't get around that. And he said, you got to just pick yourself up and get on with it. You know, and he sure, he sure did. So the, the accountant in him, I still see at the kitchen table when he's doing his crossword puzzles. A dear guy. He went to the doctor this week. My sister took him for a checkup. Doctor looks at his hands. He's got a lot of bruises. Doctor says, what happened to your hands? He goes, I was kicked by a chicken. <laughs> anyway, I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been writing down things he's been saying. I've got like 30 pages and I have hours of them. When he starts telling stories, when I was a boy... I get out my phone and hit voice memo. I got hours. I love the guy. We're, we're all lucky to have him still. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So your parents stayed married all that time. Oh, did they ever? They would wake up in the morning. You know, they both, they went, they're very devout Catholics. And they would wake up in the morning, you know, get cleaned up, uh, get dressed and go to church. Before the church, good morning, Bob. Good morning, Joe. And they kiss each other on the lips. And I go, what planet are you people from? They're like 85 years old. They just loved each other. It was so beautiful to see. We're a lucky bunch of kids having parents like that. And how many kids in the family? There were eight children in the family, six boys, two girls. And um, we had, uh, in 1956, we always thought that dad was the center of the family until mom died. And we realized, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's a sweet woman, gentle, kind, never had a bad word about anybody. I remember in 1972, I'm watching TV and Richard Nixon's on. And I'm sitting there with Ma going, I'm point, this is a bad guy, Ma. This is a bad dude. She goes, oh, Bobby. There's good in everyone. And I went, yeah, I'm not so sure about this guy. <laughs> and she goes, she wouldn't hear it. She was a sweet woman, and uh, they had the greatest relationship. But in 56, mom decides they were part of this thing called the Christian family movement. We said more prayers growing up than I don't know. And she said, I think we should get a foreign exchange student to my father. Okay, Joe. And so we got eight kids, a cousin who was... Uh, a, a lost sheep, you know, he joined a, a Trappist monastery and he was suicidal and the, the head of the monastery called my dad. He was like 19. He called my dad. He goes, this guy's in really bad shape. You should come and get him. So dad went and got him, took him back home. And uh, he, I thought he lived with us for two or three years. Turns out it was 10. And mother with her love and her kindness, you know, uh, the guy did great. Graduated from Canisius College, got a master's. You know, and anyway, so with nine people in the house and two parents, my mom thinks it's a great idea to get a foreign exchange student. So Elena Sagatti from Buenos Aires, 16-year-old, comes to our house. Boy, do we love her. She stayed a year. When she left, we cried for two days, every one of us, bawling our eyes out like little babies. <laughs> I'm serious. And the next year we had um, Francis Guggenheim from Dunkirk, France. And again, we just all hit it off. It was so great. A year. And the year after that was Renato Zanenga, banker's son from uh, Milan, Italy. And, you know, it, it, they came and went. My parents eventually started. Every year we had some foreign exchange student. And because we lived in Buffalo, near Niagara Falls, where foreign visitors would come all the time, they would go to this Christian family. We wanted to go to a normal American family. They came to our house, and we knew it was not a normal American family. There was no house around our neighborhood that, that was going, all this stuff was going on. We had a governor from India. We had the head of the education uh, thing in, in Vietnam who wore red robes, who my mother couldn't speak to because she was female or wait on. My father had to. I didn't dig that. Anyway, there was so much, name a country in this world, they came to our house. So it was us, us kids from, what was I, eight years old, seven, eight years old, had foreign visitors. 
priests was priest was in jail for 20 years in China, ta- taught people how, our family how to use chopsticks. We had uh, a guy from uh, Hungary in 57 or 8, whenever they had the revolution, 56, without a thumb. They tortured him, cut his thumb off. Nice guy. We just name a, So growing up with different people, different languages, different dress, different smells, and it was fascinating experience. It was not normal. So we had eight kids in the family, long lost cousin, and everybody from around the world. <laughs> okay, so of the eight kids, where are you in the hierarchy, and what kind of kid were you growing up? Well, in the hierarchy, I was fourth. You know, my brother Richard, Tom, Nancy, then myself, Teresa, Joey, Fran, and John. And I was fourth. So I, they were ahead of me, three of them, and behind me. So I saw them coming and going. And I was kind of like, I wouldn't say the wise guy of the group, but like, you know, with that many kids, you could you could run wild, which we did. And uh, I had a lot of fun. I love my brothers and sisters very much. And uh, we're all really close to this day. And uh, I was inquisitive. I would walk into a room like at two or three years old, I remember. I remember seeing at two years old, I'm in, what, I was just about to go to bed. And my grandfather, the piano player, boy, could he play. He would throw a, sheet, a white sheet over the piano, play the sheet. That was a parlor trick, I was told. And he would play a song like In the Shade of the Old Apple Tree. Well, when he hit the word tree, he was the most, the wrongest note you could hit in the piano. In the shade of the old apple tree. And the women, he had them laughing and crying. I saw that. And uh, I saw, and I heard all kinds of stories about the early part of the last century. So I really grew, my grandparents on my mom's side lived upstairs. So there was a lot of neighborliness. And, you know, my grandma, grandma said, if everybody, everybody pitches in, the job will get done quicker. Just really good people, shirt off your back kind of people. You know, so we were really blessed because not everybody gets so lucky. Yeah. Oh, okay. So did you have a lot of friends? Did you do well in school? Yeah, I had a fair amount of friends. I had so many brothers and sisters, but I had friends at school. School was easy for me. I just would clown around. I didn't have to study, you know, and uh, I was re- very small. I'm small now, but I was really small. I, I have, I'm celiac now. I'm 58 years old. I all of a sudden couldn't eat gluten. But I ate everything up to then. But I must not have digested everything because I just didn't grow uh, much. I, in high school, I grew a little bit. What am I, 5'4 now? A towering 5'4, I might say. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, would, I, I had a great time in school. Uh, I mean, with, it was friends. It was boring as hell, like grade school is. But my older brothers brought home rock and roll records. They would have the radio on. I saw Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan because they had the TV on. So I was exposed at the very beginning. We went to camp. I'll never forget this. Camp Turner was one of those summer camps for kids. And I went one year. And uh, my brothers would go. And, you know, it's a bunch of kids in the wild animals in the, in the countries, in the woods, whatever. And uh, on the way home, on the bus, they had a radio. And, and Rock Around the Clock came on. And the kids on the bus started going crazy. And that beat, I went, oh, I like this. It was rock and roll, you know. And that was an Elvis, little Richard, Chuck Berry, give me a break, you know. And Buddy Holly, Everly Brothers. So I, that stuff hit me right square, and I went, it changed my life. And I, and I met uh, some years ago, I think it was 2009. I, was, uh, I went to South by Southwest. I went there about four to five times. And this lawyer friend uh, I played at like 12.30 in the morning or 12.30 in the afternoon, some gig is, Willie, come here, there's somebody I want you to meet. 
And I, the way he said it, I thought, this sounds interesting. He takes me over near the merch tent. He goes, Willie, this is uh, Maria Elena Holly. And I almost fell off the floor. I went, no, you know, Maria Elena Holly. Buddy Holly, the first record I ever bought was Peggy Sue. I had two quarters. I went to Cabbages, walked by myself. I've never been in a record store. I walked in. Uh, Hi, sir. Uh, I want to, can I buy, Pe I want to buy get Peggy Sue by Buddy Holly. Gives me the 45. I gave him my quarter, two quarters. And I had a little plastic white record player and I played it a thousand times. Peggy Sue changed my life. And here I am meeting Maria Elena Holly, who lived a few blocks from me. They lived six months before Buddy died on Fifth Avenue and Ninth Street in, in the village. And I said, uh, I mean, I love her. She's such a sweetheart. She's in Dallas now. And uh, it was an honor to meet her. And she said, she want me to sign a CD? I go, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. I'm going to get your autograph. She was so nice. I remember I saw her a couple years later. And uh, well, then I played. She sang with us. You know, South by Southwest. So I'm there two years later. And they have a they had a Buddy Holly edu Educational Foundation party. I am an official ambassador to the Buddy Holly Educational Fund Foundation, which I still can't believe. You know, it's like a who's who of rock and roll. You know, like uh, this Mick and Keith. You know, everybody. You know, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? Who's this little guy at the end of the line? You know? <laughs> and uh, and Maria Elena says, I want Willie to be an ambassador. You know, and so I, I got a Buddy Holly guitar with one of his frets on the inside for a two year loan. Dion's got it now, I think permanently. And they gave me really nice people. And I said to Maria Elena, we were having dinner in Nashville once. I said, Maria Elena, you live a couple blocks from where I live now. I've lived for 50 years. What did you do for dinner? Where did you go? What did you and Buddy do? And she said, Buddy loved New York. Buddy, would, they live on the fourth floor of this, you know, I don't know how many... 15th floor uh, apartment building right on 5th Avenue and 9th Street. I walk by it many a time. I give people tours of my neighborhood and say, you know, Buddy Holly lived there. He used, she said he used to stand on the balcony all the time and just in wonder watching New York go by. She said he would take his acoustic guitar into Washington Square Park one block away and play it. He just loved to play it. Kids would come up to him not knowing his Buddy Holly and ask him about chords and he would show him stuff. And so they said, when we get older, let's have a, an educational foundation for teenagers, kids who want to learn music. And so to this day, there's a Buddy Hall Educational Foundation and I'm a mem I, you know, I'm an ambassador. Anyway, asking Maria, oh, I said to Maria Elena, I go, Maria Elena, did Buddy like Elvis? Because you're talking to the horse's mouth here, you know? I love history and I love Right, Buddy right, Hall. right, right. And, uh, you know, I can ask her things that nobody else knows. Maria, did you like Elvis? She goes, oh, he loved Elvis. Elvis came, let's say you're talking Lubbock, Texas, you know, and she said one day Elvis came to town. They went to a movie together. He loved Elvis. And they're both kids, basically. And I said, what about Little Richard? Did Buddy like, I got a story for you. Do you did, but did Buddy like Little Richard? She goes, oh boy, he loved Little Richard. One day he brought, El, he brought Little Richard back to the house. This is Lubbock, Texas, the deep south. And he comes to the front door with Little Richard. This little tall black guy. And his father comes to the door and he says, this so-and-so is not coming in this house. So Buddy took him around the backyard and they did. They had a cookout or whatever, but he couldn't go in the house. So Buddy Holly had, this is, I don't know what year, Buddy died, what, 58? So figure 57, eight, he, you know, and he married a Puerto Rican woman. You know, Buddy Holly, I really wonder what Buddy would have done, like James Dean, you know, 
people gone too soon. But uh, Buddy Holly, yeah, I forget how I got on that story about Buddy Holly, but. Uh, well, okay, but let's go back. So you're talking about all the music and buying the record, et cetera. Were the Beatles, when they broke, a big impact upon you? <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. So I used to listen to the radio. Gary Gary U.S. Bonds is a friend of mine. I used to listen to the radio waiting to hear quarter to three. And my transistor, I had a green, some kind of puke green transistor radio under my pillow. And I'd go to bed at night and I'd turn it on. I'd just put it to my ear and listen. Oh, right believe on. me, I remember. I mean, and it was magic. You heard these songs. I got to sing it with them with Springsteen at Chase Stadium years later. I mean, it's so funny. I tell these stories. You can't make this stuff up. So much of this stuff is like, that that really happened? Well, yeah. And it goes on and on. So I listen to the radio all the time. I love rock and roll. And, you know, I heard at school, I saw, uh, I think it was, uh, might have been Steve Allen. One night, there was a clip about this sensation in, the, in uh, England called The Beatles. And I saw the clip. And I went, wow, that looks like fun. So, yeah, I saw him on Ed Sullivan and just changed my life like so many people of our generation. To see, and the thing about it was four guys, like a gang, clearly dressed the same, the way they, the way they interacted with each other. They, they, they were a little club, a little gang. They, had, they were self-sustainable. They were, and the joy, that's what amazes me. You know, you and I could go to 50, 50 different venues and see people play music. And that could be good, bad, and ugly. Yeah, like always. And then if you walk in this other club and there's these guys having the time of their life, just emanating joy, emanating like, you know, irony, sarcasm, passion. You know, it was just to this day, watch those clips. They're like the energy. There was something beautiful. I've been to their boy. I went to John Lennon's boyhood home, Paul McCartney's boyhood home. I had private tours of those places. You know, the curator and his wife, this great guy, um, Colin Hall, I saw a an, an, uh, National Geographic hour show about the, the fixing up of Mendips, John Lennon's boyhood home, and how they tried to find a curator, and Colin got it. And I get there, this, a friend of mine was taking us for a private tour, a few of us in my band, and Colin comes to the gate and he's holding my first vinyl LP. I thought, oh, we're in. He's a fan. <laughs> and we had that, I mean, I don't know if you've been there, Bob, but to go to John's because like that he took us for a walking tour around uh what's it called Wilton which is like seven houses down the little village where John they showed the movie theater John used to go to where they showed John Wayne movies the graveyard where they got uh, a, uh, uh Eleanor Rigby's name on it uh wherever that came from who knows but we just it's like history coming to life fascinating and uh I forgot what, what question about the Beatles I mean changed my life and to see them grow and to see, it was the same time like Dylan hit, you know, um, I think the first song of Dylan's I heard was uh, I Shall Be Free Number 10. I'm just average common too, just like him, the same as you. I'm every buddy's brother and son. I ain't different than anyone. Ain't no use to talk to me. It's just the same as talking to you. And the next song was Chimes of Freedom. And the, the dichotomy, the contrast was not lost on me. I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Something's going on here. And at the same time, you had these four guys from Liverpool starting a real revolution. The combination, and everybody, and the Stones, give me a break. The whole British invasion hit me like a wave. And this kid back then, as you know, Motown, hello, Memphis, Stax, come on. The, the wide range, you had like Walter Brennan, you had Jimmy Dean singing about whatever, he was, and you had rock and roll, you had Little Richard, you had all this great stuff, you know, surf music, so the Beatles, absolutely, it was a major force that cha cha helped change my life. And I think there are a lot of reasons why 
but the energy, the purity, it was something wild, something uh, innocent, something play, so much playful. I mean, look at the movies. Look at Hard Day's Night. What a riot. Is there anybody around at all making music now with that kind of vibe? Maybe, but it's, it's, that was pretty special, and I loved it. And then the Stones come, these, these the Stones, the Rolling Uglies, whatever they used to call them, and they were so great. I'm not going to smile. You know, watching them on TV, carrying on, come on. Satisfaction, best song ever. You know, I saw television. And we'll talk about it in a minute, CBGBs. I got stories, and I'm so sad about Tom Verlaine's passing. And one night, I'm on the side of the stage. I went every time they played. They opened for Patti Smith. And one night, all of a sudden, at this encore, Tom goes, da, 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 da. I go, what? They're playing the band. Anyway, I love this Beatles to answer your question. Yeah, changed my life. Okay, at what point did you pick up a guitar and become a wannabe rock star? Um, I played, uh, at eight years old, I took classical piano. My older brothers played. We always had a piano in the house. We had a, you know, a stereo, like a, you know, a piece of furniture. Mom played classical music, big band music. My brothers played. Uh, my, my uncles, my, one of my uncles, Uncle Ray, was an incredible ragtime player. Uh, incredible. I mean, I've seen, you know, clips of famous ragtime players. And this guy played the lights out of the piano. His father, my, my grandfather, took him to a piano, the best piano teacher in Buffalo. And the guy said to Ray, my uncle, the teacher said to Ray, Ray, play something. And Ray would start playing Boogie Woogie. And Ray, and he go, okay, that's enough. And he said to uh, uh, his, his father, he said, you're wasting your money. He already knows too much. He played by sight. And the guy, you know, so he didn't teach him. He taught his other brother, Rich, who was a fantastic piano player. But that was always music. So when I was eight years old, and I loved music, I took piano, classical piano. But I also wanted to play the drums. I remember having a real angsty one fall i go i don't want to play the piano i'll play the drums and they said no you got you can take both but you can't you know you gotta play the piano which was i'm so grateful they did that and uh i took piano lessons till i was about 16 and uh you know when you begin high school and you're looking to party and chase girls and you know play sports and listen to rock and roll sitting out at the piano for half an hour practicing nah so i i i played the piano and i quit and then when i went away to college um, I didn't play any guitar then. I never even thought about being a musician. I was writing poetry in, in uh, high school, went to college, and my, I went one year in Canton, Ohio, to Walsh College. Ay, ay, ay. I clowned around in high school, and when I tried to apply to colleges, I, I couldn't get in. I, was, I, was, you know, I had like 86 average or something, and it was like, uh-oh, this is not looking good. And so my, one day, my, the, the guidance counselor said, well... There's a school in Ohio that just built a dorm, and they need out-of-state students. You might want to apply there. <laughs> so me and all the other losers from the Northeast, whatever. And so that dormitory was full of wise guys, losers, you name it, crazies. And my roommate, one of my roommates, Denny Wentz from Pennsylvania, from Pittsburgh, had a guitar. And it was boring. I mean, you're in, you're in three miles north of Canton. It's flat. There's nothing. There's cows. There's a Hoover factory three miles down. We're talking nothing. So I said, well, can you teach me? And he goes, yeah, sure. The funny thing, but he was a righty. And I threw things with both hands, but I was a lefty guitar player. And I played pool left-handed, bow and arrow. If I shot a gun, it's left-handed. And I suspect when I was a kid and they said, put the pen in your right hand and start writing in first grade. I can do things with both hands. I'm a little bit of both. So I, I forced myself to learn to play the guitar right-handed. And so I learned to play the guitar, just simple chords. 
My first song I learned was uh, Love and Spoonful. God, I love Love and Spoonful. It was uh, Darlin' Be Home Soon. D-G-A. Easy. And even an idiot like me could do that. And uh, I met John, John Sebastian years later and told him, hey, I learned. Uh, he goes, oh, my wife plays your records at our dinner table. I go, what? Get out of here. You know? Anyway, so I learned to play guitar at school. And what that did for me, because uh, I was still writing poems. I just stream of consciousness. I love to beat poets. Just whatever comes to mind. You know, there's no right and wrong. There's no, nobody looking over your shoulder. Oh, that's not right. No, it's like you can write whatever you want. So I did. So I started putting songs together. And then all my writing went into writing songs and just simple stuff. My stuff's quite simple. And uh, I came home from Buffalo that Christmas, that, that, you know, that break, semester break. I sat at the piano, which I hadn't played in a while. And I started playing chords on the piano, G, E minor, C, D, just chords. And I started playing songs. And I the stride, like the left hand, when you're like this, the, the left hand uh, back and forth, my, my uncles did all that. So I, I taught my, I retaught myself to play the piano. And I could teach a kid now in 10 minutes to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or Jingle Bells. Real simple. You know, it's easy. Uh, chords. There's a guy. Anybody listening who wants to learn the piano, for real, his name is Scott Houston, and he's the PBS piano guy. I was in Sweden one time. I landed in Sweden, and it was four in the morning, and I was wide awake. I'm watching television, and this guy comes on TV, you know, pitching his videos and stuff. And I'm watching him, and I go, that's what I do. I just play chords. So he can teach adults. There's no end to when you can learn. doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, my Uncle John uh, Broderick was a sergeant in the police force in Lowell, Massachusetts, after watching me play for half an hour one summer, said, oh, I'd give anything to be able to play the piano. Well, now, had I known that back then, I go, you know, Junie, this guy, can, you don't need to read music. It's chords, you know, and you can learn your favorite songs, and it's easy, I'm telling you. If you Google the piano guy at PBS, Scott Houston, look at some of his videos, and it, it's, you can learn to play the piano in no time. And I did that, I taught myself that style. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you're going to school in Ohio. Then what happens? You end up <laughs> switching from there to uh, Buffalo? <laughs> yeah, I went to school in Ohio. And... You know, it was a time of experimentation. You know, uh, uh, drugs made their way into our into our uh, circle. You know, we're smoking weed, uh, took LSD a few times, but it was not. It was just nonsense. It was nothing. You know, I go, I'm not feeling nothing. What about you? No, nothing. And uh, it was it was just beyond boring. Although I will say, the silver lining there was there were two great professors. There was a great philosophy professor and a great English teacher. You know, you get a, a great teacher who can open up things to you, whether it's history or language. So I transferred. I got, you know, the night before final exams, we, grew, we were growing our hair, and it was a Catholic college. And so the night before final exams, we were called the haystack crew because of our hair, and we were getting in trouble a lot. If you got to the dorm after midnight, you had to do 50 push-ups. I mean, really? What are we, babies here? We basically were babies. Anyway, so... The night before exams, the prefect of discipline calls us into our, his office. He goes, you can't take exams unless you get a haircut. And I said to him, you're kidding me, right? This is, you're not serious. Oh, I'm serious. Brother James. Ha! Brother James. We had to get our haircut. I mean, really? It wasn't even nearly as long as this. And uh, so I got, I got, you know, dean's list, you know, and uh, I did good grades. And so I transferred to University of Buffalo Night School. What a difference. People smoking in class, dressed the way you want, hair growing. Timothy Leary walking through the, it was so fat. The University of Buffalo was a great place in 1967, 68, 69, 70. It was really, I think I went there from 67 to 71, something like that. Ginsburg, Gregory Corso came to read. Oh, was he good. I met him. I met, I did a couple of gigs with, with uh, Alan Ginsburg, always fascinating. I saw all the great poets come through University of Buffalo. It was inspiring. Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin came many times. Abby would go on stage, do a handstand, walk around on his hands, and then talk revolution. It was just like fascinating times. I remember seeing Timothy Leary walking through the student center out of his mind. He was just looking up at the going, oh, oh yeah, staring at the ceiling. He spoke that night, but he didn't say two words. It was just a fascinating time of change. And 
there were marches, there was protests, there was, I, I got gassed one day, they were marching on one side of the a campus and they tear gassed everybody and these poor people across the campus waiting for the bus home from work. You know, they, they weren't doing nothing and they're getting gassed, you know. Uh, and anyway, I thought, wow, crazy world. So I, I went to University of Buffalo, graduated with a philosophy degree. I just took classes that I liked. So how did you end up moving to the city and what was the plan? I graduated. I went in my senior year. I went to see my guidance counselor for the first time. I had no plan. Now when kids go to school, smartly so, they go, well, I'm going to become an engineer. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a uh, whatever. And you take courses. I just took what I liked. Philosophy of art and beauty. I took that. It was lousy. You know, uh, Walt Whitman, you know, the beat poets. So in my senior year, I went to my, uh, I got good grades. It was easy for me. You know, I just came easily. Uh, 4.0 a couple times. And uh, classical Greek mythology. Fascinating. And I, I thought, well, I had all these songs, and I thought, well, these songs aren't bad. They're not much worse than anything I'm hearing on the radio. I'm going to go to New York. So I said to George Boger, my philosophy teacher, my guidance counselor, how am I doing? <laughs> he goes, you're doing really good. You got a 3.5 average, and you're a philosophy major. And I thought, ooh, philosophy. Oh, that sounds heady. What can I do with a philosophy degree? <laughs> he goes, you can go to graduate school. I went, no, 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 no. I'm out. I'm going to New York City to make records. Thanks, George. Which I graduated, you know, and uh, I went down to New York, got an apartment, got married, moved to New York, and uh, got a little apartment in the village. But just stop for, stop for a second. How many times have you been married? I've been married twice. I got married in 72, moved to New York the day after we got married, and lived in New York. I've been there 50 years right now. And same apartment. And I uh, got married two years ago, October, in Italy, in the Italian Alps. Uh, met a woman. I got divorced in 91. And uh, while touring, I've been to Italy a lot. I've been to Europe a lot over the years touring. And uh, one time the promoter in Italy, almost 13 years ago, hired a photographer to come shoot me, Christina. And we, start, we hit it off right away. You know, and it was the year that the volcano in Iceland was stopping all flights. So I, we did some shows. All of a sudden, this volcano happens, and I couldn't get me or my band back to the States. So they're on my dime, and I'm not making big money. I'm not a big rock star. I never was. It was never my plan. Anyway, so I ended up, my uh, road manager called Christina. We met. We, had a, we, we just met that night. We just really hit it off. She went her way. I went mine. But a few days later... My road manager calls her up and said, uh, you know, we're trying to find places for Willie and his band. Can one of them stay at your place? She goes, yeah, I'll take Willie. <laughs> I went there and it's been ever since, you know, or just really, I got really lucky, you know, and we, we got married. We were apart for six months in COVID. You know, we couldn't get in each other's country. And uh, we finally met in Edinburgh, Scotland at a friend's, because we, a friend's house, dear friend, Janice, so we could uh, see each other. And she said, you know, they just changed the laws in Italy for long-term relations you can get in. And she said, if we were married, we could get in each other's company. I go, let's do it. I go, I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm in love with you. Let's do it. So we got married in a small town in the Italian Alps. It's little city hall. It's like a medieval building. 50 yards from a waterfall Da Vinci drew in the 1500s. She decides she wants to ride a horse. It's a beautiful fall day. There's 15 people. This is 2020, October, the middle of COVID. 
you know, and like 15 people. Her male person, the male woman came. It was just, she was our, one of our witnesses in front of the, the, uh, what, the notary public. It's just, you can't make this up. So she, so she gets, she's on a horse. She rides a horse onto the property. And I said to her after, why did you want to, why did you ride a horse? When was the last time you rode a horse? She goes, I was five. I go, well, why did you want to? She's a very independent woman and, and one of the great photographers in, in the world. Jackson Brown flew her to uh, Scotland to shoot him. You know, he doesn't let photo photographers on stage, but she, she's great. All the album covers since 2013's American Ride, she shot. She's just a brilliant photographer, and uh, we've, been, we've had a great thing going. I'm very lucky. Okay, so why did the first marriage break up? I think in the long run, it was the, the, the hardship. You know, we were married for 18 years, together 23. We were like 16 and 14. We were childhood sweethearts. Great woman, you know, dear, dear woman. Uh, love her to pieces, you know. And I think that, I would say over the years, you know, like I got mononucleosis in I think 74 or whatever, 70. No, Luke was born in 73. We moved there in 72. And I was writing songs at night, working in a mailroom during the day. And I was, you know, working too hard. And uh, I got a really wicked case of, uh, I had pneumonia that winter. And I had to go back to New York, get a job, because a son was about to be born. Long story short, I got a really bad case of mono, like eight months in bed. It's probably Epstein Barr back then. But, and it was a struggle for years, you know? And I think that the struggle, and she, would, she stuck with me all those years. I would say to her, no woman would be staying with me all these years. Are you crazy? You know, I go, what? She goes, no, she hung in there so long. And I think it just took its toll, you know, and, and that was medical issues at her end where she thought she might be on the way out, you know, and that caused like a fight and flight, whatever. But we had a great run, you know, and it was a difficult uh, breakup, but I love her dearly, you know, and she's a great grandmother, dear friend. And, uh, and I, you know, I met Christina in Italy and I basically married Italy. <laughs> how, how many kids do you have? I have four children, four great children, you know, Luke, Josephine, Mary, and, and Bob. They're great. We're all close. You know, given my parents' close relationship, and they're always encouraging family. It's about family. You know, take care of each other. You know, we grew up with that. And uh, to this day, the whole family goes on vacation on the coast of New Hampshire. 105. We rent a bunch of beach houses, you know, and 105 people. We used to all go to one house for dinner, but once it got over 85 people, couldn't do one house so the last few years it's been it's glorious it's just a really close family and uh yeah and i have four children i have four grandchildren who i'm crazy about my sister nancy said to me when jace was born he's uh no lillian lillian's 14 now she, she said that's a secret waiting down the road you know grandchildren now granted kids can be a nightmare you know it's the people who don't have children it's, some people have a rough time sometimes. It's not always easy, you know. And when it's, when it's good, it's really good. And I've been blessed. Four kids, four grandchildren. I'm on the moon. So I'm a lucky dude. I'm a, I must be still dreaming, Bob. I must be that. I must have taken some... The LSD must have kicked in in 1967, and I'm still dreaming. <laughs> okay, you talk about the struggle. Did the struggle ever stop? Or are you still struggling? And what kept you going? Well... I think I don't. I didn't. Not, didn't know what else to do. But I'm so driven. I'm. I so love what I do. I get to express myself in words and music. Uh, it's still the fire still burns in me big time. 
when I play the original songs back from 1980, I still play them with the same passion and vigor. I'm, I think I'm too dumb to know better. That's probably the first answer. To, I don't know what, you know what else what I do, you know? Uh, I could be a delivery man. I could, you know, deliver from point A to point B. But I kept writing songs that I believed in. I thought, this doesn't suck, you know? I remember I was in Buffalo. I, I walked away from the music business. I made two records on Arista. I got signed. That's another story about getting signed by Robert Palmer. Saw me play at uh, Kenny's Castaways on Bleecker Street in 1978, July 29th. And he wrote an incredible review. You know, he, I was the opening act, you know, and, and uh, Don Hill, who was the manager at the time, great club owner for years. It's gone now. I miss him. Robert Palmer, great New York Times reviewer, was coming to, called and said, I'm coming to see the headliner. And Don said to him, I didn't know about any of this till later. You might want to come early to see the opening act. He's real good. So Robert came early and wrote this incredible review. You know, it's like if 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 my mom sat down to write a review about how swell her kid was, it just was a really great review, you know, compared me to Buddy Holly, Bob Dylan, whatever. And it was really, and that got me, I'll tell you what, I learned a major lesson with that. Because I knew people in the village for, for years, you know, and I was opening shows. It was six nights a week. You'd play Kenny's Castaways in two sets. And uh, I get written up in New York Times. And, you know, this guy's declaring me, you know, uh, something special. And I liked what I did, but I never, never went to my head. Not a minute. All that great press that first record got. I knew that it was just whatever. Anyway, that night when I, when I, Paper came out that day when I walked into Kenny's Castaways. You could barely get in. People hanging off the balcony. People, there he is, there he is. You know, people that knew me for years looked at me completely different. Something about being in writing gives it a certain kind of validation that, that music on its own might not. And so I was on stage and I did my set. I didn't know Robert was in the audience that night. And I was introduced to him later. And I'm on stage doing my thing, playing my songs, introducing the imaginary. Oh, on, on, on drums tonight, we've got William Shakespeare, whatever. And I'm jumping off the stage, telling stories, carrying on, having a good time, having fun with it, you know. And uh, I, before I got off the stage that night, this guy comes up, steps up, he goes, hi, I'm Paul Rothschild. I manage the doors, whatever. I want to talk, I want to work with you. And it was, it, Clive Davis came out, different record labels. The coolest thing for me that night was that Clive Davis was at the fourth table, and behind him was Lux Interior and Ivy Rorschach at the Cramps, who I who I knew. The Cramps and Clive Davis, like, oh, this, you can't make this up. It was so cool. And uh, four days later, I'm in Clive's office doing a show and tell in his office in front of 45, whatever, uh, the, the top people in the label. And, you know, and it, it was terrible. The sound in the room was dead, but I did it, and I got signed that day. Okay, uh, you know, Clive... He's got his self-promotion uh, machine going, but a lot of artists complain that he meddles with the music. How was your experience? I was very lucky. Um, well, I was. I know when I when I told him what eleven songs I wanted to put on the record, you know, he said, "This is great." I played when I played across the river on the piano, a song I wrote about the people starving in uh, Ethiopian Chad in '78. He thought that was our hit. You know, so I, I, I went in, I made the record, no interference whatsoever. The next year I made, an, and that year, the, uh, I was at the label in this early spring, and my A&R guy said, uh, product manager said, oh, I hear Pete Townsend loves your record. Meanwhile, these great reviews were coming in, you know, like, that's great, you know, I mean, 
I was insulated enough as a guy who wrote poetry in libraries in college and just wrote his heart out. I was writing for that. I was just trying to express myself, not trying to prove anything, convince anybody how swell I was, none of that. I was just expressing myself. And I can come up with a chorus, make a song out of it, you know, entertain. So the, the, all the great press, I was grateful because I was just hoping after such a struggle. And I was, you know, I was broke for years. And I thought, well, maybe this could help change things, you know. And when I heard, oh, Pete Townsend loves your record, I just thought, oh, yeah, I didn't believe it. I thought, yeah, sure he does. And then we the, the last tour we did that, that uh, for that, the last show we did was in Las Vegas, Los Angeles at the Roxy in 1980. And uh, we just, they just did it. Look, you, the record's over, but we're going to have you go out and play in L.A. just because, you know, it's for the, it's for the cameras. I didn't care. I'll go. Let's, I'd like to go. I've never played in L.A. And went there, played uh, the Roxy. Uh, Freddie Mercury came to the show. Graham Parker came out. And it, it, unbeknownst to me, Bill Kerbishley from The Who and a bunch of The Who's management were there. Came backstage and, you know, he came up to me and said how, how much he liked the performance. And he said, you know, we're on tour now, touring across the U.S. And we'd love to have you open the tour. I mean, I think the pretty things were already opening. They did eight shows in the West Coast. And I thought he was kidding. I just laughed. Oh, yeah. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. He's, he means it. And I go, I'd love to. Sure. Let me call Clive, you know. And so I got word from the label that they weren't going to support it. The reason being, I was driven around uh, L.A. in a fancy car and fancy streets explaining, look, when Bruce Springsteen played, opened up for Chicago at the Garden, they booed, they didn't know he was, and it left a bad taste in his mouth. We don't want that to happen to you. I figured, well, whatever. You're not going to support it. I, well, I can't. What am I going to do? So I went back to Bill Kerbishley, and I said, Bill, they won't, I can't do it. And he says, what do you need? Have your tour manager make up a budget. And, you know, that's seven, five guys in a band, a roadie and a road manager. Flights, pay, hotels, cars, meals. They paid, the who paid for everything, you know? And I, I toured, I went across the United States. It was time of, a, you know, you couldn't make that up. And I'm friends with the Who to this day, you know. So we toured across the U.S. Um, I made another album the next year and got into legal problems, former manager, lawyer. And I thought when it became more about business than music, I just came home one day. I was, I was going to arbitration in the morning, playing at night. It was it left such a bad taste in my mouth. You know, I got in this for, I wanted to have, it be a joyful thing. And obviously, I'm not, I'm a bit of an idiot, but I, I could, they're killing my buzz. I said to my wife, let's get out of here. They're killing my buzz for music. I don't want that. So we moved back to Buffalo. Not the smartest thing to okay, do. Okay, wait, 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 a little, a little bit slower. What was the legal issue specifically? Well, uh, m m m there was complaints coming from the number two guy at Arista. He called me on the phone and said, you know, this record not going to come out at the moment because uh, your representation is n not up to par. And uh, so it was problems with management and a lawyer. And, uh, you know, I tried to settle. I said, look, I'll, you know, I don't want to hurt you. I, I, you know, uh, you could stay part of the team, but let, let, let's bring in somebody who could help make the most of this you know i love you you're trying to help me but you're i'm i'm getting told that you're 
you know, not, they might not put the record out. So long story short, um, I, I, I had to fire a couple people, you know, and it wasn't any fun. I didn't get in this business to fire people. That's, that's hurtful to me, you know. I don't want to do that. Anyway, and I, I got a family. I had, two, I had three kids at the time and another one coming, you know, and, and the money, whatever money we got was dwindling. And uh, so we walked away from, the, I walked away from the business and lived in, the, you know, Siberia, Buffalo, snow, but I kept writing songs. You know, I just, that's what I do. I like to write songs. I express myself. Wait, 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 a little bit slower. The second record does come out. Sure. Golden Down came out. Right. And then after the second record comes out, what is Darius to say? Are they willing to make another record? Are they saying, hey, we don't like this, or we don't like that? Well, no, they, they, were, they were willing, but um, let me think. Scratch my memory. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't them that, that I had, I mean, Clive was always good to me. I mean, I must say, you know, two albums, second album, same thing, by the way, to answer your question, never meddled. I played that, whatever, how many songs were on that rack, played them for Clive. He goes, great, do it. You know, Mark Knopfler back then, God bless him. Jimmy Iovine called me one day. Hey, Willie. Yeah. I'm in a power station with Mark Knopfler. He wants to meet you. Come on down. So. You know, up I go to the power the power station in, in, in New York. Mark's in the back of the studio, bare feet, doing the solo for Tunnel of Love. You know, just a magical moment. And uh, Mark, we, were t we hung out, talking. He said, what, do you, what are you doing? I'm looking for a producer. He said, I'd love to do that. You know? And I go, oh, I'll tell Clive. You know? But at the time when I told Clive, he said, well, what's he done? You know, he had Proust. He didn't have a name then as a producer. It was 1980. I made that album. I was in the studio the night John Lennon was killed in the same studio. And that's another story. But so, you know, Mark had not enough credibility. So I ended up, uh, Tampa Nunzio and I co-produced it with Jimmy Iovine, executive producing it. You know, I love the way, because the night sounded, you know, I mean, who didn't like that record? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you put the second second record comes out. Yeah. Well, tell me about going back to Buffalo because you have to earn a living too. I had some money saved up. I just was like impulsive. And I said, they're killing my buzz. I'm getting out of here. And, oh, you know, um, I had new management who, a really good guy, Fred Culey's gone now. And, uh, and Bert Block, who started ICM. And, uh, I, I got out of my record company. I, I went, I, I filed bankruptcy, you know, and got out of my Arista contract, you know. It's a long story. And uh, uh, signed with Geffen for 10 minutes. I made some demos from Buffalo. They didn't like them. Dropped me, you know. So I had some money saved. And uh, it's just, I thought, I was already, I had already, it was around then, I forget the timing. I walked away somewhere and then I go, you know what? I didn't, this is, this is turning into a business nightmare. What fun is that? That's not like, that's not like listening to the Beatles on, on Ed Sullivan. That's not like hearing Bob Dylan sing like a Rolling Stone, driving around with your buddies, hanging out the window, yelling at people. I mean, it wasn't any fun. So I thought, to hell with this business. And then two years later, living up in Buffalo, I had all these songs. I couldn't get arrested. I made phone calls, calling people up. Hey, I got some songs. Couldn't get a, couldn't get a phone call answered. You know, you know it better than I do. You've seen them much more of the business. And it's like, well, you know, they dropped it like a hot potato. And I don't, I never had, when I first moved to New York, I saw so many musicians with chips on their shoulder. Another reason I changed my name. I don't want to be like that. You know, to this day, I don't have any hard feelings. None. You know, no, nothing's handed to you on a, on a platter. Oh, yeah, you're good. We like your hair. Here's a lot of money. Don't worry about the rest of your life. It doesn't work that way. You know, and so I, I was realistic enough to know, you know, that doesn't, things don't always work out. And there was a lot of good people who tried to help me, for real. Tried hard, believed in it, and but I couldn't get arrested. And I, I stopped touring. I think the last show I did was in 81. And uh, didn't tour again. I, in 87, uh, so on, anyway, during that period, I ran out of money. 
borrowed a bunch of money and worked in the post office briefly. I was too inept, couldn't cut it. You know, I was a lousy postman. You know, I'd be delivering mail at 4.30, people coming up to me on the, on the road, where's my mail? Where's my check? <laughs> and uh, uh, I didn't last. And uh, I got a publishing deal you know, in 87. That really helped a few years. And then in 87, I went to, maybe it was 85, I went to, I got a phone call one day from a promoter in Oslo who said, uh, Greg Trooper was touring here and he said he knows you. And there was a, a famous writer there. His name might come to me in a minute. Um, he was like the godfather of writers in, in uh, Norway. Uh, I hope it comes to me anyway. He died in a, some kind of a car accident coming back from on a Sunday visiting of the magazine, whatever. Really good guy, championed me big time. So I get this phone call, they're doing a benefit for his wife and kids. Would I come over and play? And I hadn't played since, you know, 81. The Greg Trooper's band will back you. Larry Campbell, the Bob Dylan's guitarist, was in the band. I knew all those guys. God bless Greg, he's gone now. Great guy, real talented cat. So I went to Oslo and did a 25-minute set that was filmed. And I carried on like I usually do, had a good time. And I got that, I took that film to Rick Chertoff at Columbia Records in 87, 88, 87, I guess, the end of the year. And, uh, and I had just written a song called Renegades. And I played it for him. And he didn't tell me at the time, but that's all he needed to hear. And then he saw it. He was at Ariston in 1978 and wanted to produce my first record, but he had not... Uh, he didn't have enough credibility. I didn't know what he could do. And by then he had, had a lot of hits. And a good guy, good dear friend, signed me to Columbia for peanuts. You have no idea how little much money I got. I got a family of four with a wife, you know. And uh, anyway, he took a chance on me, which I'm very grateful for. And I made a record I love, like places, places I've never been. You know, Roger McGuinn's on that record. Richard Thompson's on that record. T-Bone Woke co-produced it, you know. Uh, two guys from McCartney's band, Wicks, uh, the keyboard player, Robbie McIntosh, Stuart Smith. I mean, he's with the Eagles, but he played. I, mean, I was so blessed with some of the musicians. I've always been lucky that way. And uh, made that record. And that, you know, it turned out to be wrong time, wrong place. You know, the business. Sometimes it's right time. Sometimes it's wrong time. When that record, it took two years to get it made because Rick was appointed head of A&R and they didn't want him in the studio. We were looking for a producer. Now I waited for two years while he finished a Patty Smith, Smythe record and a Hooters record, Tommy Conwell. And when it came time, no, we, we, then we six months searching for a producer. By the time it came out, he was on the way out of Columbia. So it was just my champion there was, was not able to help. Had it been a year earlier, he could have pushed the buttons. I could have opened up for Tom Petty and blah, blah. But at the time I was just genuinely grateful that I got to make that record, you know? It's the music that I care about, you know? I'm not the smartest cat on the planet. I love the record. And I go, well, too bad, bad luck, bad timing for me. And so I was back out again, you know, out of the, you know, done, you know? Ron Fierstein was managing me at the time. And, you know, there's right time and right place. But I, I kept writing. I've always been written. I'll do that. If I was a plumber in Alaska, I would still write songs. It's what I do, you know? It's meaningful to me. You know, what do you do in your life that's meaningful? Some people come in and watch the sun and chant home. Some people shoot guns at a gun range and imagine them they're teachers. I don't know, but I like to write songs. 
and I've been blessed. Looking back, and there's more, there's a million stories I could tell you. You know, the first day I went to CBGB's before television played, before it became the punk mecca, I played there. And through the the, the hard times in the seventies, the hard times, because you earlier had asked about the struggle, the hard times in the eighties, very hard. You know, trying to kids go out to go to school in September, needing new shoes, they need new clothes, they need books. You know, and uh, the money's like running out. A lot of lot of uh, uh, a lot of years like that, but got through it. You know, and persisted. I was never very good at at, at uh, making a living, and just stayed with it. You know, made the Columbia record. The year later, there was an election, and I had a song called "Hard Times in America." So I put a little EP out because I wanted to get the song out. You know, and a uh, small label didn't didn't make a ripple, and and uh, you know. Remember Friday Morning Quarterback? I don't know if it's still around, but on 91... No, it's I was, not, but I know tip sheet. Yeah, I was on the cover of that uh, in uh, February of 91. You know, God bless Paul Hine. And, you know, sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't. I'm not feeling that I'm owed anything, you know. But I must say, and my father said this when I first started out, when I moved to New York, struggling. He said, you know, enjoy, these, enjoy this hard climb. He says, because if you become successful, it'll just taste all the sweeter. Well, I never gave up. You know, there's a, there's a guy making a documentary about me now. And I met him to say no. I didn't know who he was. Guy wants to make a movie about you? We've been doing it five years now, on and off. So I spent 45 years, you know, struggling, trying to have uh, uh, quality, uh, the highest quality, trying to make masterpieces, you know, um, and somebody come along and make a lousy movie about all that? No, thank you. So he flew from Vienna, Austria. I met him as a courtesy because he flew over. I go, he wrote a bunch of letters. I go, I'll meet you. But I meant to, I meant to, wanted to say no. You know, we, so we met at Cafe Reggio on McDougal Street. And uh, I said, hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for wanting to do it. But why do you want to make a movie about me? I'm not a rock star. I don't have hit songs, you know. And he says, because you, he says, right away, you never gave up. You're doing your best work now. And with New York City as a backdrop, it's a story of inspiration. And I went, no, okay, because I love New York City, madhouse that it is. And we talked for two hours, and every single thing he picked up on, we were just, you know, talking about our lives, telling stories, you know, being in Paris. I did an interview tour with J.D. Doherty, my drummer. We just drank our way across Europe, you know, London, Amsterdam, Brussels, Paris, Zurich. Munich, we drove through the uh, Italian, we drove through the Alps, throwing stop every half an hour to throw snowballs in, in June in the Alps. It was like talking to God. End up in Hamburg, you know, where the Beatles played. We went to the Reaper Bomb. Fascinating. The red, the red light district, the most unsexy place you'll ever see. And it was, it was magical, but everything he picked up on this director, Lucas, was like really smart. Like if we talked a few things, everything he picked up on, I go, this guy's pretty smart, you know? And anyway, I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong about this. No, you know? Okay, well, let's try it. And so that was like five years ago. So we filmed in Italy, in uh, London at the BBC with the great Johnny Walker, uh, around London, around out Buffalo in the Northeast, New York City, a ton in New York. You know what's pretty fun? You should do it sometime. Put a, have somebody put a microphone on you and a camera and follow you. Walking the streets of New York, within 10 minutes, something's going to happen that's peculiar. It, it's happened time and time again, and it's really fun and interesting. You know, I like character. 
whether it's you know a, a, a medieval uh, city hall in the Italian Alps, or whether it's uh, you know some grungy club in Lower Manhattan on the Bowery, you know things with meaning and character. I love that. That inspires me. That's why I keep doing it. Anyway, this thing's coming along pretty good. This film, you know, we did a show. Uh, so I toured with the Who in 1980 across the U.S. Right, and I've kept good, great relations with uh, with Bill Kerbishley and, and Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. They've been really good to me. You know, uh, I played uh, a few years ago, five years or so. The the Music Cares was honoring Pete Townsend and Bill Kerbishley. I get a call one day, early May, and it's my booking agent, and he says, "This is a few years ago. Hey, what are you doing May 28th? I remember that date." I go, um, I'm here in New York because uh, we just got a call from the Grammys. They want, they're honoring Bill Kerbishley and Pete Townsend. They want to get five artists to sing two Pete Townsend songs. Bruce Springsteen, Roger Daltrey, Joan Jett, Billy Idol, and you. I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> that's what <we> got. <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? Wait a minute. There's, anyway, that, that, that's, that's how nice these guys have been to me. And sure enough, whatever the, the Nokia Theater, whatever it was called, what a blast. You know, I got to play with the Who. I mean, give me a break. Again, can't make it up. And I sang Substitute, and the kids were all right. And two of the best songs ever. And uh, and then, so we're sound checking. Here you go. You can't make this up. We're sound checking. And I did my sound check, electric guitar, sang my songs, you know, with the Who band. I mean, Pete wasn't playing when I played. So great. And then uh, Bruce sound checked. And then we, we all went out to do the encore uh, run through uh, Won't Get Fooled Again. And I'm at the very end of the stage, you know, microphone, says Willie Nile at the bottom of it. I go, so proud to be here. Won't get fooled again. I, I, I never played on guitar, but I know I tip my hat to the new constitution. I'll sing the chorus. So Pete comes with his acoustic guitar and he's looking down to all the, the people. He goes, we need another electric guitar. And he's looking at me. I'm going, we, we need another electric guitar. He's looking right at me. I go, ah. Uh, I'll get mine. So I turn around, I walk back to get, I'm thinking, what are you doing, you idiot? I'm not Richard Thompson. I cannot, I don't know where this, how to play it. So I get my guitar, I'm thinking, geez, now you did it. And I get back to this, the front of the stage and I move my microphone right next to Pete and, and, uh, and Roger and Bruce. I'm going, this is, this is not working. This is not going to be trouble. And so I, I'm, I'm, so they start playing the song. I'm going, oh, this is fun, but I'm petrified. I knew two of the chords. I hit them. And then the rest, I'm just going, Chicka, chicka, chicka. I was just chinking away. I didn't know the chords. You know, if I was Richard Thompson, I could have pulled it off. So Pete goes, Oh, that was pretty bad. Looks around at me, goes, Willie, loosen up. <laughs> it's like right out of a Bill Murray movie, right? And and uh, uh so we did it again, and I did the same thing, you know, and I thought, well, Bruce will be really loud, you know, he'll cover it. He was you couldn't hear him. And he goes, Ah, well, we'll be okay. Pete left. You know, and, and Bill Bill Kerberson, God bless him, goes, well, if there's not any mis if there's no mistakes, it won't be a who show. <laughs> you know, so so we go in the dressing room. I, I'm walking by Bruce. I go, I'm taking this to the dressing room. I don't know how this song goes. So I get in the dressing room, sitting down. Bruce comes back with his guitar and there's the lyrics are spread out in front of us by uh, Kevin, his dear uh, guitar tech. And uh, so Bruce and I picture this 15 minutes on a couch, like like teenagers, like high school kids learn and won't get fooled again. You know, he didn't know it either. And I go, I think that's a B minor. He goes, I don't know. I go, yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, after about 10 minutes, he goes, I got it. I go, uh, I don't. So I took the, the, the lyrics, went in the corner for another 20 minutes and learned it. And we played it that night and it was so much fun. You know, there's, clip of it, there's clips of it on, uh, if you Google Won't Get Fooled Again with the Who and Bruce and me. It was just glorious. You know, when you got nothing to lose and you go on stage and you're not trying to show off and you're there because you love the music. I mean, that's why you like it. You know, you, 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 you persist because you love it. You know, and because you care, obviously we, it's mostly crap, but there's some great stuff. And growing up the way we did with all that music, that's so much inspiring music, soul music, R&B, blues, British Invasion, Dylan, you know, the whole revolution that happened, you know, um, it's meaningful, you know, and music still means something to me. It really does. You can tell I'm, I mean it, you know, and, and I make these, I made nine albums in the last 12 years on my own label. You know, House of a Thousand Guitars, The Innocent Ones, American Ride. Ten years ago, I made American Ride. Last week, we did a, a 10th anniversary and played it top to bottom. I hadn't heard half of those songs in years. That was so much fun, you know. And I'm going to do Streets of New York next month at the City Winery or in March. Nine albums in 12 years. In 2006, when I put out, here's the, six, here's the positive side of the story. In 2006, I put out an album called Streets of New York. Again, you know, waited for Andy York, the great guitarist who helped co-produce the record with Rich Pagano and uh, my band, and made this. I waited for Andy. He's worth waiting for. He's Mellencamp's lead guitar player, and he was busy. He finally had some time. We made this record, and I love it. That's about the streets of New York. It's a picture on the back of my feet, you know, and on the stones my son took, and a great photographer, and... It came out and it, it put me it, it put, put me back on the map, you know, it made the charts and billboard, whatever. It didn't make me rich, you know, nothing's made me rich. That's coming. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I, I thought then, you know what? I can't control the business. I can't control radio. All I can control is the songs I write and the records I make and the shows I put on live. You know, I want to try to make a masterpiece every time out. I'm just going to try to make the best records I can make. Why wouldn't I? You know, when I make a record, I don't make them in the studio. I got the songs written, you know, and I have it picked out. I sometimes sequence before we record them and I won't go in. I won't record a song if I don't think it's special. I don't want anybody to subject anybody to that. There's enough crap out there without me adding to it. So I've made these records and I try to make every one. And there's a, now there's a, I said, I'm going to build a catalog. I didn't care about fame anyway. Money, yeah, I'm open to that. But uh, now I have, uh, you know, 14 records I put out, and uh, 13, whatever. And I'm proud of them. And, uh, you know, I feel really good about that. So the journey, the struggle, which continues, you know, I'm still working hard. I'm not rich. I'm, I still live five flights up. You know, we got it in, in the documentary. There's film footage of me walking up. You know, you shoot somebody's feet from the back, walking up five flights, carrying a guitar and a bag at two in the morning with wet socks, damp underwear, wet pants. You know, you're so close from the show. And over the years, I used to hate those stairs. Now, I, I thank you, thank you, thank you, because it's kept me fit. You know, three times a day, walking up five flights. You know, and it's been fascinating uh, the characters I've seen that I've met, but many of them gone now, you know, George Gerties, uh, many people, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I mean, it, it, put, it was hard on my family, although I'll say this, 
if in 1980, when I made that first record, and was uh, there was a double-page spread in Billboard, page seven and eight, Willie Niles' first album. Isn't he swell? Whatever, whatever it said. You know, New York Times, LA Times, Stereo Review, glowing reviews. I was deeply grateful for. I really was. For, for the people who wrote those, for Aris to try and for me, you know. And from then, if I'd have become really, really rich and really famous, who knows what destruction that could have wrought. Would my four kids be as good people as they are now, being able to have anything they want? I need a new car, Dad. Oh, you know what? I need a new car. You know, uh, my kids are really good people, you know, and, and we all love each other and my grandchildren because there's a sense of family. Had fame and, and riches entered into that equation, might it be the same? I, I don't know. It was certainly a hard road. And it continues. I'm 74 years old now, you know, and there's a gig this June, Willie Niles' 75th birthday. <laughs> That's funny. I don't feel it, you know, and I'm enjoying it. And I got one of the best bands in the world and it's never been better, actually. So, so I live to tell the tale to this point. Okay. If you go back, those of us were there when the first Arista album came out, which I certainly bought, there was a huge buzz. So from the outside, it looks like it didn't happen. So from the inside, all of this, you're, you know, you're, you're very level, but I have to believe you were really distraught or maybe temporarily bitter when you had these setbacks oh my before god. you equalized. Oh my God. Yes. It was so hard. I don't, I don't know. Bitter is the word distraught. Absolutely. You know, just uh, terrified, absolutely. And it didn't happen, you know? I mean, it was a lot of hype. It was overhyped. But they were trying, you know? It's a work sometimes it doesn't. But it was really difficult. The strain on my family was really immense. So it was a very difficult times. I mean, mostly really hard years, you know? I'm not, not trying to put a rosy picture on it. You know, it was tough. And, you know, trying to make a living as a musician, not the easiest thing, you know? And sometimes you can be deserving of it and doesn't happen you know there's no deserves in this world it is what it is but was i was i absolutely blue and distraught and, and dismayed and heartbroken oh absolutely absolutely but like my dad says you got to pick yourself up and get on with it you know you know it's funny this is a pretty good example last december a year ago i was in buffalo for the holidays staying at dad's house and it was four degrees out. And it's the morning. Dad's waking up. He's going to go to church. My brother's going to take him to church. And I'm waking up to, you know, wash my face, you know, hit the men's room and go back to bed. And I, I coming out of the bathroom and dad's about, to, you know, in his shirt, he's getting ready. I go, it's like four degrees out there. It's pretty cold. And he goes outside the door to get the newspaper. Comes back in. He goes, yeah, he says, that's cold. And he goes, he pauses for a minute and he said, bring it on. <laughs> the guy's 103, 103 years old. And he goes, bring it on. I mean, that kind of spit that, you know what? Yeah, I'm knocked down, but I'm getting back up. What's that great band movie where Levon says, New York City will kick you in a, kick your ass, you know, and you run out, of, you leave town with the tail between your legs and you get back up again and you go head back into the fight. I ain't never given up. I'll drop before that. But, but was I blue? Was I dismayed? Was I brokenhearted? Absolutely. Oh my God, yeah. I'm trying to support a family. And there's no, you know, there's no easy, everybody's got a tough story to tell. Mine's no different than anybody else. 
Everybody's got it hard. That's why, that's what music offers us. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Kate, go back. You said earlier that you were a proofreader for Showtime. When was that? <laughs> yeah, I was a proofreader for Showtime. So in 1999, I had a, like 97, 98, 99, I had a band in New York, Willie Nell and the Worry Dolls, Andy York, Rich Pagano, Brad Albetta. Great, scrappy little band. My God, we, made a, we went in to cut some demos. It came out with, I, I thought, this is an album called Beautiful Wreck of the World, you know, and it, it holds up to this day. I, I love it. And in 99, I'm running out of money again. And I go, Andy, I'm, I'm getting broke. And he goes, yeah, it kind of sucks, but you can always proofread. I go, what's that? And he goes, well, it's pretty bad. It's pretty boring, but like, you know, you can survive. 
So I found this place. He, he gave me this number you could call, and this guy gave a three-day, two-hour class what it was about, and he brought up a, a fake resume. And so I take this fake resume, you know, and I, I would go into a, you know, a employee places, and I guess they send me out for a job. I go to some law firm. I didn't even know. I remember the first, I, I went, <laughs> I get to Showtime. I had a job. I was doing legal proofreading, and it was easy because yeah, on the left side, you had a, a pile of paper. On the right side, you had a pile of paper. You just had to make sure that they were, they were, the, the changes were correctly made. So, it's, uh, so I did that. And a financial proofreading, midnight to eight. Oh, my God. I'm drinking coffee all night. I get home at eight in the morning. I lay down to go to sleep, and my eyes are wide open. I couldn't sleep. Anyway, I got an offer for a part-time job at Showtime. A, a dear friend said they're looking for a part-time proofreader. This is like June or July of uh, 2000, I think it was. Something like that. And I went up and I applied. Yeah, sure. You know, it was easy. The, the boss there, Paul, was so great. I get this part-time job. And I'm there in the summer. And it was easy work. There wasn't much work. And uh, one day I hear my boss playing Beautiful Wreck of the World in his office. And he calls me in. Willie, get in here. <laughs> yeah? He goes, he holds up my record. He goes, this is really good. I go, oh, thanks. No, 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 no. This is really good. He says, I know music. I used to play sax in a band. This is really good. I'm all, I said, well, thank you. And he says, you know what? I'm looking for a, a full-time proofreader. You want the job? <laughs> Just like that. I went, yeah. So I got a day job at Showtime in the creative department. Great, great people. The CEO of Showtime, Matt Blank, huge fan. The president, Les, mm, wait, Les, oh, come on. Mm, might come to me. Now you're talking about Les Moonves, who's not, sort of head not, of CBS. Not, not, Moon, not Moonves. It was, uh, I can't, it'll come to me. Great guy. He was a the president. They'd stop me in the hall. How you doing? You making another record? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm in my little cubicle running my little label, Riverhouse Records, and doing the work. Oh, here comes some work. No problem. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Okay. Next. What about, you know, and uh, we filmed it for the, for the documentary. We got footage of me in that cubicle. And I, one day I leave the cubicle. You know, I got a call from uh, Terry, uh, who was it? Somebody called me, Springsteen's people. Bruce wants you to come to Giant Stadium when they were closing the last five shows at Giant Stadium. Bruce has been really good to me. I mean, he's invited me on stage many times. He's joined my band on stage many times. You know, he's just, uh, he's been really good to me. And so I'm, it's, I'm in my cubicle doing this, you know, uh, this job. And it was, I was, it's, it's steadied my boat after all those years of Wolf at the Door, you know, uh, uh, fear and worry and stuff. And uh, that was clowning around in there, of course. But so next thing, so I, I got out of work. I get a bus. I go to Giant Stadium. I'm in Bruce's dressing room. And he goes, we're going to play American Land. It goes like this. He plays me. And I got it. So I'm on 70,000 people going nuts at Giant Stadium. It's loud. And I'm laughing because I know the E Street Band. I'll play with them before. They got it covered. So I figured this is easy. So I go up there. I'll play with Bruce. And because uh, I'd played with him at Shea Stadium in 2003. And this was the last five shows at Giant Stadium. And uh, I'm, so I go from my cubicle, you know, in near Times Square to, you know, in front of 70,000 people going nuts. And I, I finished the song, left the stage. And next time I hear, they're going, Willie, he wants you back. He's going, let's get Willie Nile back up here. I go back up, we do two more songs. And do you know how at the end of shows, Bruce, so the, the band will all go to the front of the stage? Well, it was that moment when they all went to the front of the stage. 
you know, very front. So I go, well, I'm going too. So I followed him at the front of the stage. I remember looking down, this woman's looking up going, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> I just looked and I went, <laughs> I looked, I go, I don't know. I'm just here, you know, and uh, God bless him. Generosity is that spirit of, he's got that spirit of uh, loving the play, you know, loving the music. It makes a difference. Anyway, I forget where I started off on that tale, but. Uh, how many music. years, how long did you work for Showtime? 12 years. I worked there 12 years and they were so good to me. It was interesting. I never minded going, you know, and because it was not hard work. I wasn't digging ditches, you know, and I had, I had, uh, I had healthcare. My brother, my youngest brother, John had a heart attack at 50 years old because he had no healthcare for four years. He managed a, a, a club restaurant, a bar restaurant that went, that he had, that went under. And for four years, he was doing the apartment fix ups. So he didn't go to a doctor. I asked the woman who did the autopsy. I found his body, the apartment right next to mine. Then I have two days, I found his body, and uh, it was just dreadful. And uh, I asked the woman who did the autopsy. I said, hey, if he went to a doctor, she goes, oh, yeah, he'd still be here, you know, but he couldn't afford it. So Showtime, I got, uh, I had a regular salary. I could pay my bills. I had health care, and I could run my record label, make records. And Showtime was nice enough to let me get unpaid leave to go to Europe to tour two weeks here, two weeks there. Until one time they said to me, my boss, Paul, I said, you know, we can't do that anymore. There's, people are saying, well, why can't, if Willie can do it, why can't I get on paid leave? And I understand that. And so I really had to make a decision. It was a real fork in the road for me. Do I quit? You know, I was doing gigs. Do I really take that jump off the, the deep end? Well, the deep end must be my home because I took the leap. I figured, all right, I'm leaving this job and I'm going to try to get gigs on my own. I had no booking agent, no manager. And, um, I might have, a buddy of mine was managing me. No, I think it stopped at that point. Anyway, um, uh, I worked at Showtime 12 years and uh, met Christina around that time. And then uh, I've been making records and touring as much as I can since then, you know? Oh, okay. So let's start with that. Uh, how many gigs a year do you do? Uh, what are the economics? You have a band. How does this all work? It, over the, it varies. Before COVID, I was doing maybe 50, 60 shows a year, something like that. You know, uh, I didn't have a booking agent for a while, but I've had one for some years now. So sometimes I play solo, sometimes duo, sometimes full band. Depends how much I'm getting paid, you know, and I've, I've been blessed with great, great players who, if you see the band play every single song, they give everything they got every night. Nobody phones it in like, yeah, pay me. None of that. They are passionate about it, as, I, as am I. And economically, I'm going to the UK for some shows in April. Four shows. Edinburgh, Leicester, Chichester, and London. We're playing the 100 Club. I've played there before. The Who played there in the 60s. The Sex Pistols played there. Great venue. The great Johnny Walker is going to come to the show that night, you know, the great legendary DJ from the UK. And I was going to get a couple of guys from this two, this, this a guitar player and drummer. I'm taking my bass player. That was the original plan. These two guys would join us in Edinburgh. And uh, Joe Strummer's old drummer in uh, the Mescaleros, Smiley Bernard, Barnard and uh, James Stevenson. From the Alarm, the Cult, were going to join me in two of the gigs. And all of a sudden, they couldn't do one of the gigs because 
they had to rehearse all day with the alarm. And I wasn't bringing my band because it didn't pay for itself. You know, I couldn't afford to bring them. Flights, pay, band pay, hotels, van rental, back line. So taking, going to Europe, having instruments, or not instruments, but uh, amplifiers, drums, and transportation, that adds up. Uh, if you were in a group, you could split it three, four ways, five ways. But when you're a solo artist, you pay. You have to pay people. So I've done, I've played, I've toured with a Spanish band in Spain. When I'm in Spain, there's great players there. In Italy, I got, I'm doing dates in Italy in February, duo show with a great blues guitarist. So it depends where I go, how much money's being paid, if I could take the full band or not. A great friend and fan has come up with some money to allow me now to bring my New York City band to the UK. So uh, for, for three shows, three of those four shows. I'll ha so in London, I'll have my guys, my New York City bad boys. It's going to be fun. So it, it varies, Bob, from, from how much you're making, what you can afford. And I've been, I mean, I've, I've been, I've played, oh my goodness, uh, arenas. I've played dentist office. I've played, no kidding, in South by Southwest, there was a dentist office. You know, he, this guy did gigs for, he would do work for musicians who couldn't afford it. So they were doing a, a concert in his dentist office. We've done everything. We played closets, played, uh, you know, arenas, whatever. It's, it's all of the above. And I find that pretty, looking back, fascinating. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't, there's no chip on my shoulder and it hasn't knocked me down yet. Okay. So if you stop today, do you have any money? Not enough to live on. Nope. Nope. Not, no nest egg. It was doing all right before COVID hit. You know, when COVID hit, uh, there was a lot of gigs and I was doing all right, you know, starting to save money, you know, and, but COVID came and the gigs went in 2020 after I had a gig with the band February 29th. And then we had one gig the rest of the year, one gig. I did a series of online once a month online shows, you know, through veeps.com. And they're fascinating. One of them, we went, I went with my bass player on the streets in New York, and we went to at the Bowery Mission to a song. We went to outside the, uh, the Dakota where John Lennon was murdered, you know, and just did songs around New York, told stories about the city. I had my band in Bowery Electric, great club in the Manhattan punk club, Jesse Mallon's club. So I got through that year by doing online shows. Well, after that year, the, the people don't care about seeing online shows anymore. And there's gigs, enough to survive, but it's, the last year it's been thinner, you know, it's been thin. So COVID has been thin, and this year, we'll, we'll probably finish the movie this year. I've got gigs lined up, you know, different parts of uh, North America, and uh, Italy, UK, you know, England, Scotland. So yeah, I'm, I'm working away, I'm a working musician, you know, and I'm grateful to be, you know. I never thought I would, I mean, are you kidding me? I never dreamed, I never dreamed. You know, this kid in college writing poems in a library that I would be, you know, standing on a giant stadium with Bruce Springsteen, that I would be, you know, playing with Lucinda Williams, you know, Richard Thompson singing The Last Time. I opened for Richard. He's a dear guy. And I said, he said, what do you want to do for a cover? I go, let's do The Last Time by The Stones. Lucinda, what do you want to do for a cover? I go, let's do I Want to Be Sedated. So Lucinda, this is a great show, and I got to do it. I Want to Be Sedated. That's fun. And... So has it been hard? Hell yeah. Oh my God. Would I advise anybody else to do it? No. But having been through it and survived it so far, you know, and I must say, 
it, it, it tastes sweet. I got to places I never thought I would get, ever. Never. I mean, my God. I mean, The Who. I played with The Who. I played with Springsteen. Ringo Starr, in 1992, I put an EP out. I get a phone call. I met Ringo on Friday night. Somebody, I was just a, a friend of some friend took me there. I shook his hand at Radio City. I get a call the next day. The person opening up on Monday night at Jones Beach is sick. Can you and your band play the show? And we did. And, they, and it was amazing. I'm backstage. Check it out. You asked me about the Beatles. I'm a Beatle freak. Love the Beatles. Love the Stones. So Ringo Starr. So we get Monday, a June hot night, Jones Beach outside of New York City on Long Island. We get there. And me and the guys are standing back behind the stage. And in comes this bus with Ringo, Dave Edmonds, Joe Walsh, Timothy B. Schmidt, uh, Zach Starkey, um, Dave Edmonds, uh, Todd, what's his name? Todd Mungren. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty rocking band. And um, Ringo, walking backstage, sees me, comes right over to us. And he, I mean, old school. Two, here's two great stories, Ringo. Comes over to me. Are you Willie then? I go, yeah. He goes, thank you for doing it. We're happy to have you, you know. He, he looks around, he goes, are these the lads then? You know, we were all just dying, you know. So he goes, so we're sound checking. He walks on stage, standing like right, ten, you know, 10 feet, looking like what's, what's, he cared about what the audience was going to hear. And so uh, my bass player wasn't there. So I had my roadie who didn't play bass, Anyway, he probably goes, oh, we'll see. We did great. We rocked at night, and they said they want us to do another half a dozen shows. So these are like out, indoor, outdoor, like 20,000, 16,000 capacity places. And it's, it's Ringo for crying out loud. And so the last night of the tour, and this is, goes to show you, this is old school. I went out there, did my, my half an hour set, you know, 22,000 people, what, 20,000. And Ringo's up playing. I saw him. I went downstairs. My two of my kids were there, and I said, "Ring." You know, I got a couple of photographs with Ringo, and uh, he's on stage. He finishes the set with photograph. But all I've got is a photograph, and I real. And I've got tears in my eyes. He comes off before the encores, and he sees me, and I'm about thirty feet away. I'm not near him. Does a beeline, walks right over to me. He shakes my hand. He goes, thank you, Willie. Big hug. He says, I want to thank you. You did a great job. I want to thank you. He hugged. I get a big hug. And he's all wet. And I'm thinking, beetle sweat. I'm covered in beetle sweat. sweat. I'm not washing for another month. And he, and he says, do you want to come? Hey, you want to come and sing? I get by with the help of my friends. This all happened. Bob, I'm telling you, this happened. I mean, I, I must be still dreaming. So wake me up when, no, don't wake me. So, I go, let me get my coat. So I run backstage, get some ridiculous polka dot jacket that I was wearing. I walk on stage and Rick Danko's on stage. Who's, Rick was a friend. And Rick goes, hi, Willie, how are you? Nice to see you. Know, and, and I'm on mic with Nils Lofgren again, like I had been with Bruce. And Ringo goes, and you all know who this is. And he gives me one of these uh, hand gestures alluding to me. And, and we sang, I get by with a little help from my friends, which was really bittersweet for me because this was 1992. And in 1980, I was making my second album for Arista at the record plant. Started the album on December 5th. John Lennon and Yoko were, I was in Studio B, and they were in the mix room upstairs doing Walking, walking on Thin Ice. And uh, on a Sunday night, uh, we, we started on a Friday. And Tom Peninzio, my co-producer, knew John. 
And he said, when do you want to meet John? I said, well, let's, you know, money was being spent fast. So I said, let's, let's do a couple of days and maybe have some tracks and who knows, maybe plan something or let's, let's get some work done first. Tuesday night, I'll, I'll meet him Tuesday. So we record Friday night, Saturday, Sunday night, it's midnight. Phone rings and it's John Lennon's engineer. And he said, uh, John's out of strings. Does any, do you have any guitar strings? He's t- telling uh, my, my Tom Penunzio. And we go, uh, yeah, we got strings. So I got some strings. Like my lead guitar gave him some strings. And I was going to put a note to John. Thanks for the music. I love you. I thought, that's ah, too corny. Just send him up. I'll tell him when I see him. And this is Sunday night when I see him Tuesday. So we come in the studio Monday to work, which is December 8th, 1980. And uh, we started at 4.30. And uh, we were recording a song called I Can't Get You Off of My Mind. And I'm playing the piano that John played often in the record plant. And uh, at 7.30, John came in with Yoko. I didn't see him. We didn't know. Anyway, 10.20, the phone rings. PM, the phone rings. Tom Panuzio answers the phone. Tom's a great guy. I love him to death. And he goes, all right, I'll be right out. Hangs up and he says, I'll be right back. We were all listening to a playback because we had cut, did a couple of takes. We were listening back, making tweaks, talking about the arrangement. Tom leaves. He didn't say that he was going out to meet John by the elevator to get an autograph for whoever the guy that gave him the strings. Tom Panunzio had a buddy in Jersey. Ken was his first name, who had bugged him all week to get an autograph from John. And so Tom figured, well, Tom knew John. He'd worked with him before. You know, they were friends. And so he called and says, hey, the guy who gave you the strings, whose name is Ken, last night, would love to get an autograph for John. Could John give an autograph? So the phone call was the engineer saying, John's coming down in five minutes. He'll give you the autograph then. So Tom goes out to meet him. He didn't tell us because we would have all wanted to go out to the elevator. He goes out to the elevator, sees John, a big hug. John signs the autograph and says to Ken, who strung me along, uh, love, peace, peace and love, John Lennon, John Lennon drew a picture of his face. And Tom he walked out into the, to his car, and five minutes later, he was murdered. The last, autogra- the last thing he played uh, was on guitar strings that, strings that we sent up, and the last autograph was to the, the guy who sent up the strings. And we get a phone call, and John, Tom comes walking back in the studio 15 minutes after he walked out. And he goes, somebody just shot John. And we, the band and I were listening to a playback. And I said, John, John who? Because, you know, I didn't know what that meant. He's John Lennon. I go, what? What do you mean? Somebody? And I thought, well, maybe he got shot in the hand, you know? And sure enough, the phone rings. Front desk and it's David Geffen. And he said, John Lennon's all right. I just got a call from Yoko's best friend who said John's on his way to the hospital. And uh, no, he left 10 minutes ago or whatever, you know? And the phone ringing off the hook. We couldn't record you know, I heard my, my dear drummer, J.D. Doerger, I heard crying in a corner behind the door. He's crying his eyes out. You know, I, I could cry. I could, I got to stop for a second. I could cry thinking about it. So we went, we went out to the bar and we went to a bar and we drank the night away. And uh, the next day, we get to the studio and uh, the, the record plant had hired uh, a bodyguard for John when he was there. His name was Bobby. Six feet six, 300 pounds. Big guy, very nice guy. I would, I'm a little guy, and I would like challenge him to a fight, you know, just clown around. We, we were friends, even just after a few days. And he, he was brokenhearted. He said what happened was that, that they had just mixed walking on thin ice. 
uh, he said John was in the greatest mood. I mean, I, I, I choke up even thinking about this, but he said John was in the greatest mood. He said they just mixed a song that he thought was going to be a hit for Yoko, Walking on Thin Ice. And if you listen to the guitar playing on that, it's the most searing, gut-ripping guitar. And Double Fantasy was number one. The press were finally given, and John, he was, he was getting some respect from the press. He was in great spirits. So he says to Bobby, Bobby told us the next day, hey, Bobby, he, was, let's, he puts his arm around him. No, he said, Bobby, let's go to dinner and celebrate. You know? And Bobby said, I'm sick to my stomach. So John put his arm around him and says, oh, you go home. Don't worry. You go home. We'll, we'll go celebrate another night. So instead of, and I came downstairs, John got in the car, you know, uh, uh, signed the autograph, Tom Penenzio downstairs on the main floor, walked out in the car, went home, got shot. And had he not been sick, they'd have gone to dinner. The car would have taken them to uh, the Dakota where Bobby would have gotten out of the car with John. Who knows? It's, it's moot now, but th that happened. So it's, yeah, it makes me choke up. It's like, yeah. If John Lennon was alive, could you imagine? No, I can't. But just stopping for one second. You're an erudite, intelligent, very verbal person. How come you don't do a one-man show where you tell all these stories starting off Broadway? Well, you know what I'm thinking? There's this documentary, and I, I, I've seen a bit of it. It it could be good. I mean, it could be good. There's a lot of well-known people in it, but that's not enough. You know, my you know what? My dad steals his show. My father is in it. Us talking, telling he's telling stories. We're gonna finish it this year, and I'm hoping that that can make enough noise. You know, where it can raise, you know, uh, uh, raise the level of the kind of places I can play, raise interest, you know, maybe sell a catalog or whatever. And, but that's an idea. I didn't think about that. I don't know if I could do that night after night. I don't think you know, the same. I do. So I do solo shows more often now. Well, than you know, it's to. like Springsteen. It's not exactly the same every night. Yeah. You don't have to tell the exactly the same stories, but you know, you're, you're there. You talk about Buffalo and you strum a few of the songs that you, uh, that you heard uh, growing up, you do a little satisfaction, do a little last time, <laughs> and, you, and you tell your stories. I could listen to you talk all night. Oh, well, I'm, I'm just... I mean, I, you know, seriously, a lot of people are boring or too self-congratulatory. I mean, you've survived. I've yeah. really struggled myself. I know what the struggle is. My yeah. ex-wife left while I was struggling, too. I mean, you know, that was a big part. There's yeah. no fucking money. And, well, you know, most people give up. Everybody tells you to give up. That's the weirdest thing. I'm too dumb to know better to give up. Right. You know, it's basically an inner strength. So, you know, you have all this stuff and, you know, maybe just rejuggle it into a different form. And I think it would be a success. Listen, you started in one of those hotels, like where Buster Poindexter plays, you get a yeah. review, you do it, maybe you do it once a week for, you know, six months. I think the word of mouth of the reviews would be, it would start to take off. I really do. That's interesting. I, I like that idea. That's actually, I'm going to think about that because I, I like to play, I play the piano as my main, my main instrument. I could play the piano for two hours. I play the guitar, the stories to tell. I've done things and seen things, 
You know, whether it's walking to CBGB's on a summer night, seeing a guy on Mulberry and Bleecker, homeless guy with his head actually on a concrete cinder block as a pillow. And that inspired the song Old Men Sleeping on the Bowery on my first record. I've seen that. I've seen you know, Chase Stadium. I sung on, with little Steven on mic singing uh, Twist and Shout where the Beatles sang it, you know. I've been on mic at one of Bruce's Christmas shows with Sam Moore singing Santa Claus is Coming to Town. I mean, I'm st I must be still dreaming from an LSD trip in the 60s and I just haven't woken up yet because you can't make that stuff up. But I, I like your idea. I'm going to give some thought to that because I love telling stories. You know, I'm not full of myself. I love the journey, you know, and I've survived it. I'm stronger because of it. How about that? How about that? Oh, absolutely. You survived that stuff. Absolutely. I'm a better person having been through uh, these things and I'm too, either too dumb to know any better or there's some serious spit and grit in my bones. But I want to say one thing. I think that the, my divorce was triggered by, not by, well, the hardships didn't help, but she had some medical issues and thought she was on the way out and had, they call it fight and flight and just thought she was going to die. And, uh, you know, she's a doll, but she, she hung in longer than I thought anybody ever would. So there is a struggle. Sometimes it's worth it. And uh, I wouldn't, if I had to do it again, would I go through, you know, how many years? I moved in 72 to New York, signed a record deal in 78, record out in 80, 81, walked away from the business like an idiot, you know, and put a record, got signed to Columbia Records, put a record out in 91, wrong time, wrong place. Uh, put an EP out the next year, another few years with nothing. And then a buddy of mine convinced me, you should make your own, put it on your own record. People are starting to, on your own label. People are starting to do that. So I raised some money, borrowed some money from a friend, made beautiful record of the world, paid them back, you know, and I've been making records on that little label ever since, you know, and it's kept me afloat. Uh, and I'm, I've got stories to tell, that's for sure. And, and you know, my, my dad has a real gift of storytelling, you know, and, and in the movie, you'll see some of it. It's like, I mean, it's, I didn't even where to begin. I was kicked by a chicken, that guy. He's something else. How is your health? I'm knocking on wood. You know, I've been really lucky because like when the 75th birthday business this summer, it's like, I don't feel my age. I don't feel 75. You know, I'm, I've been very lucky. You know, I had some a melanoma on my face like about 14 years ago. So I go check their, my skin checked every six months. But by and large, I've been lucky, you know, and, uh, you know, I've never had problems with drugs. I like wine with my dinner, you know. But I've never, I've managed to stay afloat from being sidetracked by that, that nonsense, you know. And um, I, I'm small enough and close enough to the ground. And I, <laughs> always, I was always pretty well, I was always an athlete, you know. So I feel fit. I feel still have, I'm still sharp, you know. Well, you could call it sharp. But I still feel like I'm engaged, way engaged to, to, to life. And to, I write these songs because they inspire me. They make me, I can make sense out of something. I, I put a record out in the fall called Wake Up America. Steve Earle, to duet with Steve. You know, I wrote it just, I follow the news really closely. And I care about the world, you know, and it's, it's like, what a place, my God. And there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, my songs inspire me. When I play them with the band, we, I, I gave a show in 1991 in Providence, Rhode Island, in this big, huge hall. 
that capacity was 1,200. There were 12 people. I'm at Columbia Records, there's 12 people. I invited them all on stage at the end of this to sing with us. And so I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I must say, the songs inspire me. And when I play, and you could see it on my band, they're inspired. And if the audience, people leave happier than when they came in. How many, can't tell you how many times people have come up and said, you know, you sign CDs for some people after a show and, Oh, somebody, my mother died six months ago and I've been down, haven't been out. My friend said, oh, you should go to a Willie show. You'll feel better. And, you know, when people, that makes me feel good. If I can, if my music can inspire me and my guys to feel better, be able to pay some bills and an audience could come out and feel better. The, the, the experience in Buffalo with the blizzard, I must say, the silver lining was to see the good side of neighbors, how people can be good to each other you know, look out for each other. I saw that right in the face because this was life-threatening. You know, my dad's 105, you know, and I'm 74 and my brother's 70 and we're freezing. We made it. And uh, anyway, I, I'm, I'm still a believer, I guess you'd say. I believe in, I always say I believe in people. I mean, I know there's some nasty customers out there. Let's be, you know, there's a lot of them, but there's also a lot of really good people, you know. And my politics start, like if there's a cul-de-sac, and there's a little seven-year-old kid riding his bike in the cul-de-sac. And Tucker Carlson's got a house on one side and Stephen Colbert on the other side. And that little kid gets hit back, you know, the, hits the bike and down he goes. I would think that those two guys would come out and see what they could do to help. That's where my politics start. You know, uh, call me naive. I clearly am. But I do be I believe in music. I believe in the redemptive quality. I really do. I'm on my soapbox now, but I do in rock and roll, in music, whether it's classical, jazz, blues, swamp, boogie woogie, there's salvation in it. There can be, you know? So I, I, that's, the, that's the wave I've been riding, you know? And it's not, has it been easy? Hell no. Oh my God, no. You know? But when I leave here, I'm going to go up, walk up my five flights of stairs. I don't have a gig tonight, so I don't have to carry my heavy electric in my bag, but it's kept me, it's kept me healthy, knock on wood. <laughs> Anyway, well, hopefully you'll be around here for, for many more years. Willie, I want to thank you for taking this time to talk to my audience. You've really been a riveting listen. It's been my pleasure, really. I appreciate you taking the time to have me on, Bob. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the journey that I've had. Happy to share it. And, and I believe, and I think people listening, keep the faith. Do your best. My, my dad's advice while going through my divorce best advice I ever heard because I, I didn't eat for a month. I was really in bad shape back then. And he said, look, you can't control what anybody else does in this world. The one thing you can't control is what you do. Walk a straight line, treat people good, you know, right from wrong. And you know, he would say, leave the rest in God's hands. Cause he's a very, a man of faith and it served him well, I must say, but like, you know, do the best you can really in this world. Just try to pick if your neighbors down, pick them up if you can, but hang in there, do your best and have some faith in that. You know, I'm, I'm a believer and I'm, you know, someday I'll drop, you know, and we all got what a Clint would say. We all got it coming <laughs> in, uh, in that great film, uh, the unforgiven. Well, I'm alive and I want to celebrate it. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to do my best at. So I, I'm very grateful for you to have me on. Thank you for taking the time, Bob. Well, you've been great. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 